And this week, we're meeting with Assistant Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at our own Baylor Law School, Jenny Branson. Jenny, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to law school. Where did, you, where did you go for your undergraduate studies? I went to Harvard. And, and what, did you, what did you decide to, to focus on while you were there? I studied history and literature and uh, comparative religion. So, you know, very useful things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> did you find that those courses helped prepare you for law school? I think the the heavy emphasis on reading and writing for sure did. Yeah. Um, the analytical ability, absolutely. And and we've talked about this numerous times on the podcast. Major choice is not going to get you into law school. It's skill set, grades, and a whole bunch of other things yeah, that absolutely. go along with it. Mm-hmm. What, what are some of the things that you did as an undergraduate to help you figure out if you wanted to go to law school and to prepare for it? Honestly, I'm probably not the best example of, of how to choose to go to law school. It was a different time. It was, you know, uh, 2006 when I was kind of making that decision. I had these liberal arts uh, majors. I had no idea what I wanted to do. My brother was going to law school. Pre-crash. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly, pre-crash. Um, so I was kind of waffling between law school and business school because um, I kind of had an interest in business and maybe business law. Um, and so I decided to do both. Um, That's right, because you did you did an MBA and and your JD. I did, yes. Um, I didn't really talk to any attorneys. I didn't really visit any <laughs> campuses. You know, I'm pretty much the example of what not to do yeah. when you're choosing to go to law school. What did you enjoy about law school when you were there? I loved the first year of law school, which I know sounds strange, but coming from senior year of college, I went straight through. Um, you're balancing so many different things in your senior year, you know, applying to school and finishing up your coursework and saying goodbye to your friends and leadership um, opportunities. And then you get to that first year of law school and all you have to focus on is school and it's on Mm. topics that are arguably really interesting to you. I found them interesting and you're with people who are as nerdy as you are. Um, (laughs) You just get to immerse yourself in that learning experience. And there's less pressure to be involved in a hundred different student organizations. Like, like I think a lot of people feel in undergraduate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the things that you perhaps didn't enjoy about law school? Not, not so much, you know, to the level that would say, I would never do it again. But what what were some of the challenges that you face that maybe students need to know are coming their way when they go to law school? I think most students probably know this, but I think the it's less cyclical than undergrad is. You know, undergrad, you have kind of an easy few weeks and then you ramp up for midterms and then an easy few weeks and then you ramp up for finals. Mm. Whereas in law school, you have to be prepared every day. Yeah. Um, you have to do your reading. You have to do um, your briefs. Um, and then, of course, the, the getting called on thing. Um, <laughs> It's, it's a humbling experience, and I didn't love that <laughs> um, coming from um, undergrad where, you know, you never get called on. So, 
How about uh, the, the transition from midterms, papers, and a final? How did you find the transition into law school where it's a lot of the time just one exam at the end? I didn't mind it too much because I think you do kind of have a sense of where you are because you are supposed to be doing that, um, you know, daily preparation, uh, daily briefing, um, daily reading. So you can't really get behind on your reading or your preparation. Yeah. Um, it was a little bit scary not really knowing what a final was going to look like. I was fortunate I had some really incredible first year professors who spent a lot of time kind of preparing us for what to expect. Um, but yeah, that, that first set of finals was a little bit daunting, but you get through your first set and you have a better sense. Yeah, you know the ropes and, and mm-hmm. you go from there. Well, well, Baylor's had a lot of wins lately. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic bar passage outcomes, mm-hmm. uh, some national rankings for, for a variety of really positive things, mm-hmm. great employment outcomes. Yeah. So I wanted to walk through today a couple of things, uh, walk through a few things about what makes the Baylor Law School unique. Okay. Uh, and how that can play into students' considerations when they start applying and deciding where to go. So one of the things that Baylor's obviously really well known for across the country is its its preparation for the courtroom. Right. Practice court. And right. And it has the Top Gun competition, mm-hmm. uh, and that's wonderful mm-hmm. for folks who really feel like that's where I want to be, either right. in criminal court or litigating matters. What about folks who are interested in transactional work? Right. What, what might be some reasons to entertain Baylor? Uh, of course. Well, first of all, only about half of our students go into litigation. So um, it's, it's definitely a misconception that if you go to Baylor, you must be a litigator. Um, and first of all, kind of dispel the myth of practice court. So for, for people that don't know, practice court is a required third-year program. Um, it's all you're taking for three months and maybe all you're taking for another three months. So it's what you're focusing on for six months of your third year. Um, it's intensive procedure and evidence um, in professional responsibility in the morning and then in the afternoon and evening you are in our courtrooms walking through every step of numerous trials with uh, people in the corners of the room critiquing you. Um, the last thing they do is they hand you a pile of facts and say, go put together a case. So yes, it is very focused on uh, trial advocacy skills. However, there's also a heavy, heavy writing component in um, practice court. And we also always have transactional alumni come back and talk about the value of practice court. And they say, you know, number one, it's really important to at least have a sense of how the trial system and the court system works. Because if you're writing contracts, you're writing them to avoid litigation. That's right. So you don't want the other side to be able to hold that over your head as a threat. Um, so we do think it's important for everybody to at least have a sense of how that works. And then number two, and I think this is more important, you're learning how to advocate for your client under pressure and learning how to command a room. Um, those things are the heart of what every attorney does. Um, Transactional law is not as simple as paper pushing. There's, there's a lot of negotiation, advocacy that goes on outside of a court, Mm -hmm. you know, that's part of doing that job. Um, we do have a number of transactional law opportunities too. Um, a good number of our professional tracks are transactional law focused. Um, we have some of the top transactional law um, faculty, Professor Beth Miller, um, Professor Tom Featherston. Um, so you can choose to focus on a transactional law area. We have things like business law boot camp, mm-hmm. which is um, in between our spring and our summer quarters where we have 
um, attorneys come uh, to the campus and they give our students an intensive look at the life cycle of a business and all the legal issues that surround it. Um, we have a transactional law competition called The Closer, and that's happening next month. Um, we have several transactional law teams. Um, we have a number of tra- required transactional law classes, um, including one of our legal writing classes, which is all about um, drafting transactional documents. Um, so we require some of that for our students too. Well, I think too, if you know how a dispute is going to play out, mm-hmm. you are looking for problems before they become problems as you're drafting documents and putting together transactions and, and those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the other things that makes Baylor unique is it doesn't operate on the normal fall, spring semester system. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the Baylor Law calendar? Of course. So we are on a true quarter system, which means that our year is split into four quarters. Fall is late August through early November. Um, and then there's a five-day weekend. Um, winter is early November through end of January with a two-week Christmas break in the middle. And then there's a five-day weekend. Spring is um, early February through end of April. There's a one-week spring break in the middle. Um, and then there's a week after. And then summer is early May through end of July, and then there's no class in the month of August. Um, So that might sound daunting, like you have to go year-round. You don't. Um, We have three different entering classes. You can enter in February, in May, or in August. Um, You can go year-round if you'd like, Um, but for fall starters, kind of the most traditional schedule is to do fall, winter, spring, take off summer, fall, winter, spring, take off summer, fall, winter, spring. Um, You know, the exception is people who, say, for instance, might want to do policy work, then they might choose to take off the spring quarter and be down in Austin when the legislature is in session. Mm. Um, For summer starters, the most traditional schedule is to do four quarters consecutively. So summer, fall, winter, spring, take off summer, do fall, winter, spring, take off summer, and then do fall, winter, graduate in the winter, and then uh, take the February bar exam. So that still gives them two Two summers summers Mm -hmm. to be able to get on the kind of traditional recruiting pattern. Absolutely. Um, Spring starters are the ones that typically only take one summer because they will do five quarters consecutively. Spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, take off summer, and then do fall, winter, spring, summer. Um, They kind of light load that last quarter, the summer, Mm -hmm. Um, and then they take the July bar exam at the same time. Um, as the previous fall starters. And is there a way for them to still maximize their employment options despite having missed one of those summers that other intakes have the access to? Of course. um, They can do externships while they're here. And also our summers are four months long. If you take off summer, um, that's ample opportunity to do a couple different things during the summer. Yeah. Um, So our spring starters have the same um, employment rates as as everybody else. so I don't think they're really lacking in the experience side. And they don't have to just take off one summer. If they really want to do more exploring with internships and jobs, they can split up their schedule a little more and take off two summers or two quarters or however they want to do it. So you ran through the dates um, just before, but just just to remind our listeners, so the traditional application windows generally kind of first of September through till mm-hmm. late that year, early the new year. Yeah. Uh, what are some? What are the dates that students need to be thinking of for Baylor intakes? So all of our applications for the next year always open on July first. So for twenty twenty, all of those applications will open July first, twenty nineteen. Um, spring and um, fall will be 
or fall early decision, that deadline will be November 1st. And then summer and fall regular decision will be March 1st. And is your early decision binding? It is not. Okay. Um, it just guarantees you that we will get you a decision by December 15th. Um, and, you know, at least over the past couple of years, we've had a little more money at the beginning of the yeah. year. So That's the thing, isn't it? It's timing is important. The earlier you're able to get it in, you know, the better the better off your prospects. Yeah, that hasn't always been the case. Yeah. Um, you know, we went <laughs> well, scholarships are a new thing, you know, comparatively. I mean, they, right. didn't, they didn't really exist until, you know, a few years ago. Right. So you're in, if you're listening now and thinking about going to law school, you're in the golden age of right. law school funding. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess I should mention one more thing about the quarter system. I got kind of sidetracked about why we do the quarter system because yeah. it sounds kind of nuts. Um, and it definitely is a fast paced program. Um, I think one of the reasons that we do it and that our students come to appreciate it is that it makes the material a little more manageable as we've been discussing. And as I'm sure our listeners know, um, your grade in law school is largely based on one final at the end of the term. So we do have more finals, but they're over nine weeks of material versus 16 or 17. That can really make a big difference. I think particularly when you're starting out, um, just a little bit smaller final, you get feedback more quickly. Um, those first grades don't matter quite as much. It also means that you get to take more classes over the life of law school. Mm. Um, maybe if there's a class you don't like, you can get out of it a little more quickly. And then uh, this is the part that our students kind of have a love-hate relationship with is we <laughs> think it um, reflects reality a little bit better. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you're out in practice, you're going to finish up a trial or a negotiation or whatever it is you're doing, you're going to head right back to the office and keep working on the next thing. Yeah, um, you didn't get a week off exactly. after a trial. Or, or a nice, you know, month-long or, or six-week break after you do every big project. You know, yeah. it's, it's much more kind of small projects and then keep working on the next thing. Similarly here, there are going to be some quarters when you're in finals on a Wednesday and or even a Thursday and your next set of classes are on Monday. And that's tough and we realize that. But everything about our curriculum really is to prepare you for um, practice. Yeah, being being ready to start day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of, the, one of the trends I've certainly noticed in my role is that not a huge number of schools, but certainly an increasing number of schools are starting to phase in either elective interviews or interviewing a small portion of their potential class. And I was hoping that you could maybe talk us through a little bit about what Baylor's approach to interviews is, and then maybe we can walk through some tips for students who are in the process and are either about to have an interview or, or are contemplating requesting one. Of course. Uh, so we've been doing interviews, I think, probably about five years now. Um, and we started doing them because we really just wanted another subjective piece of the application. We're such a small school that, you know, every person really has an impact here. And so we wanted a chance as much as possible to get to meet everybody who's going to come here. Um, and Which is hard, isn't it? Yeah, so it really many applicants. is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, particularly meet those who, who maybe are, are borderline uh, score-wise. Yeah. Um, and see if they'll be a good fit. So our interviews are optional. We do them on campus. We do them via Skype. Um, we do them all over the country, particularly during the fall. Um, you don't have to have completed your application to partake in an interview. You just have to 
um, be planning to apply during that application cycle. How would they request an interview? Um, so our uh, dates and times and locations are all on our website, mm-hmm. um, and they just email me with their with their time and date preference, and we set it up that way. Um, it's a thirty minute interview. Um, there's nothing they can really do to prepare necessarily. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no, they're not difficult questions. It's just more a chance for us to get to know about various character traits and kind of learn about their, um, journey to law school and, um, kind of why they're interested in Baylor law. So, I mean, maybe think through those questions, but everything else is very, it's not a content based. No, it's not. It's more a chance for us to get to know your, um, character traits and, um, kind of how you interact and, and to get to share a little bit about Baylor as well. Yeah, so it sounds like it would it would be wise to maybe think through in your own mind, why why am I applying to law school? Yes. Why am I thinking about Baylor Law School? Exactly. What what is it that I hope to perhaps achieve mm-hmm. after I get my J D and and maybe say those answers aloud. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> as you prepare. Yeah. And then I mean this is common knowledge, but have a few questions about Baylor Law or whatever school you're interviewing for because inevitably there will be time for questions at the end mm-hmm. and it's not a good ender if you just sit there and look you know dumbfounded or ask a question where the answer can be very easily found <laughs> yeah exactly with, like, with a five second Google search you're meeting LSAT yeah exactly <laughs> where is Baylor right exactly um can you maybe tell us a little bit about the the time of those interviews can students expect them to go for 15 minutes 30 minutes, an hour? So we set 30-minute blocks. Um, sometimes they don't, la- if the student is very quiet, sometimes they only last 15 or 20. Um, they won't go over 30. And do you feel like those interviews can really make a difference? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in both directions. So I do caution students, um, and anybody who's spoken with me before will know this, know yourself. And if you are a socially awkward person i mean that's all right we have socially awkward lawyers but maybe don't participate in an interview um because it really does leave an impression and as we're going to um the wait list or discussing candidates we we look back at those those notes that we took from the interviews um and choose to advocate for or against a student based on on those interviews so absolutely they can have an impact and I think it's fair to say, too, that if you do know that you are one of those people mm-hmm. and you decide not to go to, ahead with an interview, mm-hmm. don't don't ignore that, nonetheless, because you're going to deal with clients right. on a regular basis. And right. so that's a skill that can be developed right, over absolutely. time. Um, so you've definitely then had candidates that maybe were on the side where you're like, oh, on paper, I'm not quite sure. And then you've interviewed them and it's gone mm-hmm. really well and you've admitted them. Absolutely. But, but equally, someone who's looked good on paper, but then you've met them and it it hasn't been down so well. Yeah. I mean, typically it is for those people that are really pretty close to our um, admittable range. If you have, you know, incredible scores, it's it's going to be more difficult to um, really blow it in an interview. Similarly, if, you, if your scores just aren't where we are, an interview is not going to completely make up for a lack of scores. But in that middle range, an interview has a big impact. I guess that brings us to another repeated theme throughout these podcasts is your LSAT score matters. <laughs> yes. It really does. And, yeah. and, and it 
it uh, it pays to be patient mm-hmm. and to take it when you're actually performing at the level that you want to be rather than just hoping for the best. Absolutely. And I think now that it's being offered nine times next year, yeah, you have many more opportunities to choose that LSAT that's going to fit the best with your schedule. What's your approach to multiple scores? We don't really care if um, there are just a few. We'll look at the highest. Yeah. Um, we might have a question if there's a huge jump, mm-hmm. um, but typically we just chalk that up to, okay, this person wasn't too smart and didn't study the first time. Um, but uh, if the applicant wants to explain that, um, he or she is more than welcome to and I guess at the same time, with nine sittings, right. nine scores that, is problematic. Mm-hmm. We would really start to question probably even your four, prudence. Four or five is probably something. Yeah, to yeah. I think the the four or five is when we start to question your prudence. That's a lot of money to be spending on taking yeah. LSATs too. And and you'll have a pretty good idea of what your score is likely to be before you're going in. If you're doing your preparation exactly. correctly, you, you should know roughly what you're aiming at. Yeah. Um, now, students yeah. always get disappointed because inevitably the actual test score is four or five points lower than what they've been yeah. you know, testing in their practice tests. And I, I noticed too uh, that a lot of the time retakes are taken too quickly mm-hmm. and they either get the same score a score marginally better yeah. or in more cases than people think down it goes mm-hmm. down yeah absolutely yeah, yeah so be be patient and put yeah. in that extra that extra bit of work mm-hmm. um jenny thanks for joining us glad to be here